listening to the Post-Atomic Horror Podcast with Ron Algar-Watt and Matt Robotham. Episode 75, covering Manhunt and the Emissary. Hello, friends. We're back. We are. We're not in the same place anymore, which makes me sad. Alas. We're t- <laughs> things are bad now. No, things are good. We got good episodes. We're having fun times. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not the same as having people in the same room. Like, uh, just hanging out with Irish Gav in a shady hotel room. That was fun. We yeah. Should, we should do more of that. We should. We should get a show budget together and, uh, and and fly people out here when they're guests on the show. That would be a delight. Yep, every week. Yep. I don't see how that would ever be a problem. Nope. Unfortunately, it's just it's me and America and Matt and Canada, and here here we are. But so uh, you just have to deal with it. But we will do our best. And Matt, why don't you tell us about the return of Luxana Troy in Manhunt? Ah, uh, yes, Manhunt. The Enterprise is picking up some ambassadors from Antique Three to take to Big Oweta Oceana Six, the water planet. <laughs> The ambassadors are weird-ass fish people who have been frozen for the journey, so O'Brien stacks them in the corner of the transporter room, where Worf can admire them from a distance. Turns out he's into fish people, apparently. Which will explain his attraction to Deanna in a few years. Anyway, speaking of Deanna, her mother arrives on a shuttlecraft. Turns out she's going to the same conference, but that's just a ruse so that she can fuck on, get her fuck on with Picard. Turns out Luxwana's just entered Beta Z menopause, which usually consists of a quadrupling of the sex drive. Or more. In Luxwana's case, a lot more. Picard spends most of the rest of the episode desperately trying not to fall into Mrs. Troy's gaping vagina, mostly by hiding out in in Dixon Hill's office on the holodeck, where he's continually annoyed that people keep trying to murder him while he is relaxing in a pulp detective novel. (laughs) Jeez, Jean-Luc, maybe you should try something genuinely relaxing. Like riding that fucking horse you were so keen to get up on. Man! Anyway, Loxwana turns her attention to literally every single male crew member, and also Dr. Salar, while I desperately wonder if the 24th century has done away with the vibrator. What a dark, masturbation-free universe you've envisioned, Gene. Thought your vision of the future was all about how we do things for ourselves now. Anyway, Loxwana attempts to shotgun Mary Bill so that he and Data can join Picard on the holodeck, blowing his cover. Loxwana follows and eventually hooks up with Dixon Hill's holographic bartender, Rex. Huh. I guess they do have vibrators in the future. Sort of. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyway, the Enterprise arrives at Kevin Costner Presents Waterworld. The two fish guys are revealed to be assassins, and Luxwana's vagina is beamed down to the planet, where it'll be no trouble at all. <laughs> oh, poor Majel Barrett. Yep. No, not really. Nope. She she was awesome. She, she was fantastic. She was great. It's so nice seeing her not be uh, Nurse Chapel, who I liked Nurse Chapel, but she didn't get much to do, and as the, as the original series went on, she had even less to do. Yeah. She'd just pine after Spock and hide in a corner. And, and had soup thrown at her. Get soup thrown at her, exactly. Whereas here, they, they really give her... I mean, at first, she is sort of a cartoon, and I think it's funny here. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they'll give her something with a little more depth as the series goes on, which is quite nice. And uh, it, it, this is a good character for her. Yep. I enjoy it. And it doesn't shy away from the fact that she's not the young, sexy thing anymore. They made her, you know, the 50-year-old whatever now. Yep. Which I like. So, uh, how about your good thing, bad thing? Uh, let's see. This episode's got a lot to recommend it, but I have to go with the ending. Uh, you get the idea that the writers started out with doing a standard assassin- assassination plot episode, and then they decided that they'd rather spend the full 40 minutes on with, with uh, Lux Mana. And frankly, so would I. Absolutely. We'll and sort of get more to that when we get to uh, my quote. It's, it's 
a really very sort of straight up vaudeville slapstick kind of like the, there's a lot of setups that are very old timey. Yep. You know, like smash cut to someone's reaction to something. And, she said what? Yeah, exactly. Or Mr. Hom just drinking everything in sight. There's yeah, Mr. Hom apparently to... developed a, a drinking problem between the between these episodes. Yeah, but I think it's more of a literal drinking problem in the airplane sense than an actual alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. I think he will just pick up any vial of liquid and drain it. Yep. Regardless of whether it's it has alcohol, it's even drinkable. He just wants all liquid. He's no, Mr. Hom, that's the shrinking potion. <laughs> and your bad thing? Uh, this, I feel like there was a lot of padding in this episode. Most of it's covered pretty well, but the episode really drags out when Picard goes to the holodeck. He spends like five minutes being delighted by the place, and he's already been there. That didn't bother me. I, you, you point this out, and a few other people point this out, that they're still fascinated by the holodeck. I don't know. He hasn't been there in a year. I mean, that's and true. And they point but... out that he hasn't done the Dixon Hill thing for a while, and he's like, oh, yeah, this place. Huh. This is still pretty cool. Like My that, old office. That didn't bother me. And I think the the necessary comedic premise, the idea that everything's going crazy with Waxana, so he runs to the holodeck, I think you need to establish that he's there doing his thing. Meanwhile, she's out there getting crazier. So that when they meet up again at the end, it, it has more of a, you know, more of an impact. Like, I think that was a deliberate pacing choice. I, I do think it slows down, but I think this kind of story needs to slow down in the middle. That's just how they work. See, that's understandable. I just, I spend that, all that time just like, come on, we've seen the holodeck. you got a nice office. Come on. I also wonder if, and I don't know this, this is a total guess on my part, but obviously the show's gotten a lot better this year. I was recently reading a, a summary of an early season one episode mm. by um, by that fashion blog, actually, Fashion It So. Yes. And um, I was like, wow, I didn't really, like, we've noticed it as it happened. But uh-huh. just seeing early season one versus late season two, how far this show's come in such a short time. Oh, yeah. No, the and show's I kind of drastically wonder, changed. And I kind of wonder if they were deliberately trying to get new people on board and sort of not spending a lot of time getting you up to speed, but kind of giving you the re-exposition, like... It feels like word of mouth would have sent people to the show by now. Yeah. And you tune in, you're like, what is this? Oh, the holodeck. Oh, that's the holodeck. Okay, Tell me then. more about this holodeck. And it might, it maybe could be handled a little uh, less clumsily, but I, it doesn't bother me. I don't right. know. I, I don't know. I just, I prefer, you know, ooh, ah, the holodeck over, oh, it's the holodeck. Of course it's screwed up again and someone's sentient again. Mm-hmm. Like, I would rather this than See, what it becomes later. I just feel like the holodeck should be like, you know, like not... Not just about it breaking down, but I feel like at this point, it it should just be the holodeck, you know? You walk in there, you turn it on. It's like a TV. No, I agree. But on the other hand, it just doesn't bother me when they do All this. Right. Uh, my good thing was, well, Waxana's a pure delight. But the really nice surprise is that for the first time in over 40 episodes, I like Deanna. Yeah. We've said it all along. She has a comfort zone, and this is within that zone, playing the straight man to Majel's insanity. She's so good at it. It's like... I mean, it sounds simple. She's got to roll her eyes and look embarrassed, but there's there's a lot to it. Like, there's a, there's a very specific comedic dynamic happening here. She is the embarrassed daughter, and she plays it so well. Yep. And particularly when they have scenes where they're not talking, where they they dub in the, the, the telepathic uh, communications later, there's, there's a lot of good face acting followed by dialogue. Like, it, it must be difficult to act half verbally and half not verbally. Mm-hmm. And I think she pulls it off. She's This is really the first episode where... And she's not even dead center in this. She's just reacting. Yeah. But it's the first time where I can sympathize with her and I kind of like her and she's kind of funny. 
And she just got this horrified look on her face the whole time. It's fantastic. Um, and my bad thing, it was really hard for me to come up with something. I didn't agree with you on the padding thing. Like, you know, sometimes we disagree, and this That's is true. one of those times. But for the most part, this was just a great character piece and, and a fun story with a nice B story with the whole assassination thing sort of being an afterthought. Yep. But I, it was a strong episode overall. It was one of my favorites so far. Um, it did everything it set out to do, but I guess if I had to pick a bad thing, I'd say, where's Jordy? He's, he's not even here. He's just, uh, I don't know where he went. And everyone should always be standing around going, where's Jordy? Exactly. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure they all had deals where every now and then they didn't have to be in an episode. They, I mean, he was probably doing reading rainbow or something, yep. but it's still, it was jarring. Cause at one point she's working her way down the list of male crewmen and Mr. Hom makes this weird mime about like with his palm over his eyes. I'm like, Oh God, she doesn't mean Jordy, does she? But yep. then yeah, I don't know. You never see him. Unfortunately you couldn't find, they couldn't find Jordy cause he crawled up into one of the Jeffrey's tubes. <laughs> I assume for all of season one, he's been working on this secret project to build a series of Jeffrey's tubes to hide in Yep. when the time comes. And, and now, now that time has come. All of them lead to, uh, to his and data's blanket fort at the center of the ship. <laughs> Exactly. Where where Picard occasionally escapes to go practice the flute. <laughs> no, or he's, eventually he's, will. He's not into the flute yet. Right now he's practicing horse thing. <laughs> horse detectives? Yes, horse detectives. Dixon Hill, horse detective. Now, surely that's a novel that uh, that someone has written by now. Yep. Combining all of Picard's uh, horse, horse archaeology detective. I'm pretty sure that was the point of the Buried Age. Quite possibly. I'm in the middle of that. I'm actually, I'm intending to finish that so I can discuss it during our next uh, uh, supplemental show. Well, very well. We'll see. Um, actually, that does remind me, and I've mentioned this before, there is a great uh, Peter David book called uh, Q-In-Law. Yes. Which takes this version of Luxana, the, the full-on crazy, man-crazy, just super horny middle-aged woman, and, and combines it with Q. Like, she and Q show up at the same time. Yep. And it is utterly delightful. That's another one i got to reread, just because I always forget how great... There's only two people that can get to Picard, mm -hmm. and it's those two. Yeah. And Peter David put them both in the same book. Now, And that's what I like about her. It's weird. So far, she's the only other recurring villain, so to speak, right. antagonist, let's say, that, that there's been. The, the only person who can get under Picard's skin to this level, and I love that. Mm -hmm. He just... I mean, they've written him so stiff for so long, it's nice to see that there is someone who can break through and kind of freak him out a little bit. Yeah. And uh, you were saying you think that he's kind of into her for I, 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 I genuinely believe that, like, they talk about how Luxwan is one of the most, like, talented telepaths on Beta Z. Mm -hmm. Or Beta Z, whatever the planet Beta Z is, is the planet, Beta Zoid are the people. Right. But they fucked that up in this episode, so. Tater bed. Yes. Anyway. Um, no, I, and I feel like if she, like, she does the whole, like, oh, Picard, you're thinking naughty thoughts about me again. But you, I don't think he ever is. I think she's doing that as a tactic. I don't think he's, I, I don't think he's thinking naughty thoughts about her, but I do think he's attracted to her. Well, how could you not be? Look at her. Well, yes. And I don't even mean look at her physically. Like, she's, she's attractive, but just her personality and the way she carries her total right. confidence, just, oh. And I totally believe that she's sort of latching onto that. Quite possibly. And just like, oh, Picard. Yep. I, I just, I don't Rub know. Up against you. <laughs> there's a great scene where she invites him to dinner and you think it's going to be, and Picard thinks it's going to be a dinner with the whole, with the whole senior crew. Yep. And then he gets there and it's just him. Yep. And there's a great 
realization where he passes Pulaski in the hallway and he's like, are you going to dinner? And like, what? No, I'm, I'm going to go do my thing. What, where are you going? Nobody else is going to dinner. And the look on his face, there's a close up where he's just like, oh God, this is a trap. Yeah. No, I, I know that. I know that look. I've gotten that look when I go to school and like everyone else in my class has their project all finished. <laughs> exactly. Just but the that, dawning. What? There, there's that whole scene where she's trying to, to out, you know, like, I don't know, just creep him out or, or whatever, however you want to put it. Mm. And then you see Picard, the tactician kick in. And he's like, you know what? This is no different than trying to outsmart an alien like that's trying to kill us. Yep. I need to I need to. Do something here, and I know data. That's data, it. Why don't, why don't you come give a boring lecture? This will be great. Ah, data, my good friend. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. There's there's so much like point and counterpoint, and uh, once again, this season is really when Picard comes into his own, and they figure out what the character's all about. Yeah, and part of it is the so good at diplomacy and at, at tactical stuff. And using his resources to get out of situations and using it in a more comedic sense is great. Yeah. Now, see, I see this as, like, Picard realizing, oh, so this is the game Luxwan is playing with me this w- this week. Well, yeah. I could play that, too. Exactly. I enjoy that. There's a there's a scene, I think, I need to call this out, and you said this in your notes. I did not force this out of you. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where you said, okay, Al, I get it. Pulaski's kind of cool. Yeah. There's this great moment where, uh, where, uh, Troy and Pulaski are talking about how uh, uh, Luxwan has entered menopause, or the betazoid menopause when their sex drive quadruples. And Pulaski's like, well, I just saw the captain heading towards their quarters. And Troy's like, well, I should go warn him. And Pulaski goes, no, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> no, and there's there really is an arc this season where she becomes more likable, and I think it's deliberate. I think she starts as sort of the, the callous, kind of doesn't get along with anyone, kind of bitchy, and gradually, she, now we're to the point where she, she does something a little, you know, a little mean like that, and it's funny. Yeah. And it's sad that, you know, next week we're doing the, the last of her and then she's gone. Because, you know, you were the hardest one to win over and you kind of are starting to see it. It took the entire season, yeah. I'll tell you that much. No, there's a, there's a really good moment in uh, one of next week's episodes that you'll see where I was talking about with her and Data. But and it's not Shades of Grey? No, it's not Shades of Grey. It's the other one. Ugh, don't remind me. We're, we got two good episodes this week. Let's uh, let's just stay here. Um, So there's a point where they're on the holodeck. Yes. And, uh, I, I, for no reason at all, uh, they go to get, they go to get Picard. Uh, there, there's a reason for that, but there's, for no reason at all, Data's like, hey, you going to the holodeck? I want to go too, but wait a minute. And he puts on a suit and goes with them, and there's an, absolutely no reason for it. I don't care. Nope. It's one of those things where the logical, well, actually nerd fights against the I like fun nerd, and the I like fun nerd wins out. Like, yep. Data's there, and he's wearing a suit. Fine. That's cool enough to justify not making sense. But he does rock that suit, too. And it's a different suit than he wore last time. I feel like Data, much like myself, also enjoys playing dress-up ponies. Quite possibly. And, and of course, he has the uh, wardrobe to go for it. Of course. Well, with, with the um, with the replicator. Yeah. You can just call out, you know, no, I don't like this. Give me pinstripes. No, I don't like this. Give me a darker hat. I mean, you could go all day, and you have unlimited clothes, basically. Yeah, exactly. So it's a good thing that they don't have Barclay types for clothes or, you know, mm-hmm. they have unlimited resources. That would be bad. Yeah. Um, but but they get there and he's like, uh, they, they he, Picard remembers whatever their cover story was. He's whoever from South America. I forget what his fake name Carlos. was. That's it. And then, uh, oh, and, and uh, Riker's there and he's still in his um, 
uniform. uniform. And he's like, oh, this is Nails. <laughs> and I just realized we've been calling him Bill all this time, which is great, but from now on, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be calling him Nails. Yeah, at least until he gets another, another nickname. Yeah, another completely ill-fitting nickname that is not Will or Commander Riker. Good old Nails. <laughs> Nails. Look at him. He's obviously Nails. Yep. No, he's not. He's, he's, he's the cuddly one. I actually, I like, uh, I like the way that Picard invents his name much in the same way that the Emperor invents Darth Vader's name. Henceforth, you shall be Nails. <laughs> I don't know. Da Nails. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Dixon Hill the Wise? <laughs> well, it seemed that in his rush to relax, he didn't realize he was in a pulp novel. <laughs> yeah, okay, and and... While I didn't think it was padding, and while it's nice that this is now the third time he's in Dixon Hill, so it doesn't just feel like his arbitrary thing of the week, like they made some effort to say this is what he's into for real. Mm-hmm. You're right. He he chose that to relax in. Yeah. it's You're always going to have a gun in your face. That's inherent That's to the, the genre. Point. Yes. Like, there's no, there's no point where someone's not going to be shooting at you or beating you up or something. Why do gangsters keep coming into my fantasy and trying to beat me up? It doesn't make any sense. Captain, why don't you just activate program hammock between two palm trees? Oh, it would take like... up a lot less memory and <laughs> people wouldn't be trying to kill you. <laughs> Computer, taking a break program number 4571. <laughs> exactly. A- Computer, activate bird. <laughs> No, you know what? Freeze program. Get rid of the bird. <laughs> Nails, Computer, I want you... a bird that's less distracting. Nails, how do you relax in here? Oh, Captain, you you don't want to relax the way I relax. Just pull up heart porn number 371. No, that's in his quarters. If he's in the holodeck, it's something way more immersive. Yeah, it's a giant harp uh, uh, symposium. <laughs> symposium. Well, yes. who doesn't love symposia? <laughs> I like up on um, the planet harp symposia 4. Yes. I like, uh, there's, a, there's a point where um, Luxana's figured out that they're on the holodeck and follows after them, and she's talking to herself. Yep. Where she's at the, at the control panel, and Majel Barrett, the computer voice, has to talk to Majel Barrett, the actor. Ah, uh, excuse me, Mr. Computer. Tap, tap, tap. <laughs> I'd love, they use her as kind of a an audience mouthpiece to call out some of the more ridiculous Star Trek type things. Yep. Like, how did you get here? Oh, I took that turbo tube thing. I don't know. Whatever the hell you call it. She hates the transporter. She's just making stupid jokes at things that we accept as yep. obvious, but she just hates them. That, that just really amuses me. I like that every time she sees the fish people, she flips out. I And she's supposed to be an ambassador. She is so not diplomatic for being an ambassador. I feel like that's one of the reasons she's such a good ambassador. She, like, she, really, so catches up, it... she really catches everyone else off guard. Well, yeah, and that that feeds back to what we were saying about her really trying to disarm Picard with directness. Yeah. There might actually be some some stuff happening under the surface there, and that's just part of her game. Like, I always felt that, like, she is, like, a legitimately good ambassador. You know, she wouldn't have the job if she wasn't good at it. I don't know. She she just does it differently than anyone else. Presumably, Matt, you have this in Canada as well. There's a thing in the U.S. government called uh, promoting you to your level of incompetence, which is basically... Putting, you know, getting rid of your problems by making them the boss. Well, if you haven't noticed in uh, Gene's fut- in Gene's uh, glorious vision, we've evolved beyond the need for that. Actually, that's not true at all, because uh, P- uh, uh, Kirk's bosses, like the admirals and the com- uh, the Commodores, were always jerks. Yep, and, and then they, always, they kicked him upstairs. They, yeah, and he hated it. And they always made it clear that the captain, the, the in-charge but not completely in-charge guy, was the best place to be. Mm. 
because the idiots got kicked further up. So that's that's a thing. Card, um, you need to go on a on a secret mission. I didn't no. tell you anything about it. No. That's my episode. We'll get there. Um, there, there's kind of a sad moment though, where where Luxana's starting to hit on the bartender. You you kept wanting to call him Roy for some reason. Yeah, Rex, Rick. I don't know. Re- Remy, Remington Steele. Um, Remy LeBeau. Yeah, that's him. Uh, but I mean, it's funny. Because, you know, she can't read him, and it's like she falls in love with him, but it's kind of sad because they just let it play out. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I didn't feel bad to her until that point. And yeah. then it was just kind of like, oh. I also kind of felt bad for Roy. Eh, he doesn't even have a last name. Poor last nameless Roy. Also, his name's not Roy. Poor, poor Roy. <laughs> Listen. If I'm going to call Nails Nails, that's from the episode. You have to stick to things that were in the episode. Right, like his name, Roy. Fine. Uh, Anything else? Um, Uh, No, I think that should do it. You have a quote for us? I do have a quote for us. This is it here. This is uh, Luxwana revealing her her interest when arriving on the bridge. (laughs) All right, then. I think... uh, I think I may need to ask you to pick a secondary quote. I oh. think while, while that one has some nice emotional power, it doesn't really convey the, um, the, the, the true purpose of the quotes that we typically pick. <sighs> Fine. Oh, well, I didn't find a mate, but I did save the conference, as well as your reputations. All in a day's work, I suppose. All right, that's better. No, that ending was fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the. I, I genuinely believe that they sort of had this idea for like a typical, sort of like a journey to, to Babel type plot. Sure, and then they're like, "No, this is different, and the show needs something lighter right now." Yeah, and let, let's do this instead. Uh, and then they wrap it up in the last like minute. Yep. No, oh, I love those that. two are spies. And I love the fish people. Like, they're just sort of hanging out the whole time, and oh, they were assassins. Who cares? Yep. Whatever. No. But I also think it's important to see Loxana being good at her job because we can't just see her as a joke. We need to – she has to have some dignity to be able to act like that. Yeah, see, this is my point. Yeah, that's that's true. She's Um, really, really good at what she does, but she covers it really well. Also, one of the fish people apparently played by Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac, Ah. which is odd. Also, that that does remind me, uh, one of the uh, gangsters that comes for Dixon Hill on the holodeck was Robert O'Reilly, who will eventually play Galron, the leader of the Klingons. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to tell if you're not looking for him, but if you're looking for him, you could totally spot those crazy Gowron eyes. Yes. His insane cool. Gowron eyes. Oh my god. He never blinks, that guy. It's like staring into the pit of hell. <laughs> it's pretty great. That's who you want for the head Klingon. Yep. So, that. Any further business, or shall we press on? I think we can move on. Very well. Why don't I not tell you about the Emissary? Wow, do we make it to Deep Space Nine already? The Promised Land, Finally! Wait, what? It's a different The Emissary? God damn it. Note to self, try not to make the same joke when we get to the fourth season episode entitled First Contact. So Starfleet contacts the Enterprise with weird, vague orders about being in the wink-wink, you-know-when, to take delivery of Redacted. Picard's not happy about this, but a bitchy old lady admiral calls him and assures him that this is a vitally important mission. And if there's one thing we'll learn about Picard as the series progresses, it's that he can't refuse orders from bitchy old lady admirals. Which, in retrospect, casts a whole new light on the whole Admiral Janeway thing. Anyway, the Enterprise rendezvouses with a... How do you say that? Rendezvouses? The Enterprise meets up with a tiny box, within which is an incredibly hot woman, oh my god, Susie Plaxon is back. 
and this time she's a sexy Klingon named Kalar. Worf is less than pleased to see her, as they apparently have history together. Man, Worf, you should take lessons from Nails. He handled the whole reunion with his ex thing way better than you did. Ambassador Kalar is here to because a scout ship of cryogenically preserved Klingons from 75 years ago are about to wake up, and their ship is in undefended Federation territory. As these dudes were at war with the Federation, or at the very least with one particularly offensive Starfleet captain in whose name rhymes with Blame's Tree Lurk when they went to sleep, the concern is that they'll start attacking outposts. So Kalar is here to help with that, and also to vex Worf, which she's insanely good at. She smashes a table, they play video games, and then they get intimate, Man, this sounds an awful lot like my courtship with my wife. Then Worf demands that they get Klingon married on the spot. She balks. He pouts. A lot. Seriously, I'm positive there was some sort of off-camera mope poetry being written between scenes. Possibly in Worf's own purple blood. (laughs) Eventually, the Enterprise runs into the Klingon ship, and Worf has the genius idea for he and Kalar to cosplay as OG Klingons. Well, as movie-era Klingons. They still have the forehead ridges, and they probably pronounce garbage in the traditional way. And they totally trick them into standing down by threatening to kill them. Because that's how you talk to a Klingon, obviously. Then Susie Plaxon has to leave so she can further defuse the situation with the sleeper ship. Little does Worf realize that within her womb is the ticking time bomb that we will one day know as Alexander. But let's not spoil the moment. Let's just all pause and contemplate just how big a crush I have on Susie Plaxon. Yeah, I, you can't actually see it, but I have little hearts in my eyes. Yeah. It's, Wipe uh, the drool off your lips and let's get back to work. I don't, I, well, and that'll just, I'll just roll right into my good thing here. Sometimes a Trek guest star will turn my head, but nothing on the level that Susie Plaxon does. She she played uh, Dr. Salar earlier in the season as well. Yeah. The woman is amazing. I joke about having a crush, but honestly, a lot of it is just that she's exactly the kind of woman the show needs. Mm-hmm. Salar was great and so is Kalar. She just completely fits with the crew, adds strength and humor that's otherwise missing. She's, she's, I don't know, it's... She's the woman, she's the female character we need. Like, she's so much better than Deanna, better than, than Tasha Yar was, uh, better than either of the Doctor characters. She's the, the sort of strong female character that this show desperately needs. Yep. She's very much like Dax, which kind of informs Worf's later choices. It's actually kind of a shame that when uh, uh, Pulaski left, we didn't just replace her with Stilar. That would have been nice as well. But Instead I mean, bringing back uh, Gates McFadden. Yeah. No, it, it it could have been a funny thing to, to rotate a different doctor out every year. Yep. Like, for some reason, the Enterprise just can't keep doctors. But, uh, no, I mean, I, okay, she's, it, uh, Susie Plaxton is physically gorgeous. I will yes. not deny that. And it is definitely, there's definitely a physical thing there. But there's something about her, her, her charisma. Like, she's a good actor. She also can look Worf in the eye. Literally, she is as tall as Michael Dorn, which is super hot. But also yeah. just... I mean, physically, she can be just as imposing as him. And in fact, she makes him seem less imposing because she just wants to kill these Klingons. And he's like, no, there's another way. Yeah. Now, she does this great. great. She's great at just, like, like standing up to him. Yeah. In a way that very few other characters can do. I mean, other characters eventually... make him look stupid, too. That's what I mean. Other characters will eventually sort of outsmart him or shame him. But very few of them will out-aggressive him. Like, there's a, there's a whole different dynamic at work there. And again, she's similar to Dax. It's different enough, but you can totally see the similarities and why they, they eventually made those two fall for each other, because right. they're they're very much the same. Um, and my bad thing is the music. Jesus, Next Generation, get it together. So many elements have finally fallen into place, but your score, it stinks. Here's some money. Go get an orchestra. You're embarrassing yourself. 
the, just the cheesy keyboard, like, there's some legitimately sort of hot moments between Worf and Kalar, and I can't believe I'm saying this about two actors in Klingon prosthetics and extensive makeup, heavy makeup and, and, but it's legitimately kind of, they're fighting and then they sort of fall into bed together and it's hot. Yep. And uh, I'm not into that kind of thing. Usually I'm not like a, what would you call it? A Klingon furry? Like a, I don't know. Somebody who's into people in sexual. Well, well, you know, there, there are probably people who are into like who actually get sexual pleasure from seeing people in Star Trek costumes. I wonder how long it would take me to find it. Well, I, I'm sure there's a couple of listeners now. Not I know exactly who I'm thinking of who are going to tell me and explain to me why I'm wrong about it. But that's that's another thing. <laughs> um, no, I, I just I it's not a thing that I inherently like. There's very little in this show when when two people are passionate for each other. And I don't just mean a sexual level. I mean in general, just passionately into each other or whatever. Where I really feel it, right. and I totally did between these two. And then the music would come up, and it would—I would be like, "Great, now Hall and Oates are going to play." It was just so cheesy, not cool. Uh, what about you? Uh, good question. Everybody else go. Uh, yeah. So Al went on on about Kaylor for a while. So all I'm going to add is this: uh, she only wears full body spandex, and that is completely fucking hot. Yeah, it is. Well, that um, that that fashion blog that I mentioned earlier, that like I said, we brought it up before, and we'll link to it again because it's it's a fun thing. People yeah. are these uh, two people are going through uh, a lot of the older episodes and and commenting on the cheesiness of the costume design, which is yes. a nice angle to take. Uh, and they said repeatedly about her and about this episode that everything she wears is awful, but somehow she pulls it off just because she's her. Yeah. And they're they're totally right about that. She's just got this personality that works like no matter what. Yeah, but it's I mean it's it's more than that. It is it is her physical body. Oh yeah, that pulls off some of these stupid costumes and just like fills them out in all the right ways. Yes. And again, I don't like. I know I sound so skeevy about this, but I don't really get like this about like. I mean, we've talked about Helen Noel, and we've talked about Andrea the Android, and and I don't think there's been any others in Next Gen yet, but. Really, none of them have this effect on me, and I don't think any of them will again. Yeah. This is probably the only time you're going to hear me being a bit skeevy about this. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, for me, you're going to have to wait until Dax 2. <laughs> really? Dax I 1 didn't do it as much for you as Dax 2? Really? Yep. I mean, Dax 1 was pretty great. Oh, yeah. No, I love Dax 1, but I really love Dax 2. Huh. That is not a conventional opinion. Huh. Like, I mean, because I remember watching the show as it aired and, and being in some online communities and stuff, and, and most people could not stand New Dax. Oh, my God, she was adorable. I agree. And different enough, like, similar enough and different enough at the same time. Mm -hmm. That was a hard line to walk because you needed to be the same character, but she couldn't just be a copy. Right. And they, I think they did a good job of that. Uh, and your bad thing? Uh, I don't know. This one was pretty perfect. If I really wanted to complain, I think feel like it was a missed opportunity to not have uh, the Klingon ship they encounter be full of flathead Klingons. I see. I, I see what you're saying. I think they were trying to avoid that issue. First of all, I think they just didn't want to mention that they were flathead. They just kind of wanted to say, "Nope, you know what? They've always looked like this. Shut up. You're uh, remembering wrong." It was one of those weird things where they didn't realize people wanted an explanation and they wanted, you know, an acknowledgement. But also, setting it seventy, setting these guys seventy-five years before means there's flat in the middle of the uh, the movie era, right? So these are Star Trek three-ish 
style Klingons, and they they recycled that shot of the of the cruiser that they've used since the motion picture over and over again. I just picture them coming back and be like, "Where is the great Klingon Klingon leader Christopher Lloyd?" <laughs> oh, honey, we have some we have some words we have some things to tell you. Uh, <laughs> Kirk had had enough of him. Oh, yeah. No, it was, and and perfect might be taking it a bit far, but I love when the A plot and the B plot complement each other. Yep. Like the the Worf and Kalar thing was obviously front and center, but this whole the whole plot, the whole idea that there were Klingons from an era that we as Star Trek fans remember was a great thing. Mm-hmm. It's a nice callback to classic Trek without it being the naked now. It's yeah. a subtle thing. What would Captain Kirk have done? Not, nothing. These are just Klingons. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of Klingons. Um. And I, it's a great story, and it makes total sense that there would be areas of the Federation that were once in Klingon control that are now settled. Yeah. And they've been at peace for so long that they're undefended. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a perfect setup that you that you know you need five minutes of exposition, and then you understand the danger, and you can do all the personal stuff, and it doesn't have to distract from it. Yeah. Which was great. Um, and it was, I mean, this is the first time we've really gotten a nice look at what Worf is like, not just as a Klingon, but as a guy. Mm. And you realize how crazy conservative he is, like crazy, like, oh, well, we have had sex. Now we must get married. Yeah, like we what? talked about no. how we didn't think that showed up until at, at the at the earliest or later TNG and at the latest until he showed up on DS9. Well, they really hit that hard when he was with Dax because, again, the dynamic between them is similar where Dax is like, calm down, have fun. And yep. he's like, no, I must be a Klingon. Honor, honor, honor. And, like, that that starts here. Yeah, and he's there, everyone else is like, you're the worst Klingon. Yeah, and, and the thing is, he wants to do this thing where, you know, they have had sex and now they must get married. And she's like, no. And I get the feeling, yes, that's probably technically on the books, Uh but that most modern Klingons, you know, he's like an orthodox Klingon. He's like way super hardcore into it. But most modern Klingons are like, what? No. Yeah, I mean, if you look, that's that's pretty much on the books now. Yeah, exactly. For a lot of people. Well, uh, not officially maybe, but at least it's the way you're supposed to act. Yeah. And some people are like, you know, no. But you really get a look into Worf sort of overcompensating to be too much of a Klingon. And that's one of the things I always liked about him mm-hmm. was because he grew up with humans, because he works around humans, he feels like he has to overcompensate. I always I always come back to the feeling that, like, since he was raised by humans, his whole Klingon idea is basically come from, came from, like, reading about them. Yes, exactly. Or the 24th century equivalent of reading about them, which is, like, maybe doing holographic, you know, like going on the holodeck with Klingons. Yeah. But never really meeting a real live one and talking to them for real. Yeah. Which makes a huge difference. And and, and it's a nice, even if it's not intentional, it feels like it is. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that. Um, there's a nice thing at the beginning. They're, they're in the poker game, which is always great. And that's yes, always a nice I love little... poker game. Yeah, me too. Um... And there's a little bit of flirting between him and Pulaski again. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking, like, they may not ever do anything, but, like, the Klingon tea from a couple of weeks ago, and and she's like, your deal, handsome. And that's it. Like, that's all she says. And he gives her a look that isn't the shut up, I'm going to kill you look, which hey. for Morph is a lot. Yeah. He just kind of smirks at her a little, and it's like, you know, you're okay, lady, even if it's just that. Whatever you say, babe. Yep. But it's it's cute. It's it's a nice sort of subtle, and they'll do more. It's not a Pulaski unique thing. It's just I like when there's that when they don't have to explore every crevice. When there might be some sort of unspoken thing between some characters, I yeah. I, I really enjoy that. So it like gives the it whole, more depth. Uh, nails and 
Indiana still fuck occasionally. Think. Yeah, exactly. Again, that might not even be there, but I like that it might be. Mm. There's no reason to think that it might not be. Um, I really liked Kalar showing up in, in a tiny torpedo tube. Yep. That was insane. I watched them like, whoa, no, no. <laughs> no one is shipping me through space in a coffin. Yeah. No, it was creepy as hell. And yeah, if you have any kind of claustrophobia, I don't. But if yeah. you do, like, and I, lots of people do, that's a very common fear. Right. It's like fear of heights or whatever. It's it's something that a lot of people have. Yes. it's It probably freaks you the fuck out. Me, I'm just like, huh, that's pretty cool. And it was similar to Spock's arrival in, in uh in the movie, but uh, I think better, like in the motion picture, but I, I think it was better. They did it in high warp to save time, and, and I just, I enjoyed that. They caught it. Yes, exactly. Um, what, else? what else? Oh, uh, Picard dealt with Worf really well. There's a couple of times where Worf is obviously just really pissed off that his ex is here and just trying to, you know, and Picard never yells at him and he never lectures him. He's just like, Lieutenant, do you have personal reasons that you don't want to do this? Yes. Do you have professional reasons? Oh, no. I'm sorry, sir. Then get back to work. Yeah, but I mean, he leads him to the answer. Yeah. I really like that. It's kind of a guy in way to... I'm sorry, sir. I'm acting I'm acting like a teenager. Yeah, yes, you are. Now get back to... But, you know, there, we've seen Picard be a dick, and we've seen Picard be smooth with people, and it's nice to see that he's doing that more. Yeah. I I quite enjoy that. And I, again, Kalar, I love how direct she is. Mm-hmm. She says what she thinks. There's a whole scene between her and Deanna where she's, I mean, usually when they do those scenes where Deanna's trying to pry into the guest star of the week, they're always try, they always have something to hide. It's always sort of the unreliable narrator. It's always like, well, I am this way. And you're thinking, no, they're really this way. But everything she says is totally, you know, I have a Klingon side. I have a terrible temper. And Deanna's like, well, does that frighten you? And she's like, of course it frightens me. Why wouldn't it? Have you seen Klingons pissed off? Jesus. But it's it's nice because you so rarely get a character who just says what they're thinking and you don't have to right. worry about their motives or whatever. It was, it was nice. I enjoyed that. And again, I love how her whole stance is we must kill these old Klingons. They cannot be reasoned with. we got to kill them. And it shows you how far Worf's come along. To have him say, no, I think there might be another way. I've been on the Enterprise a while. I don't think we need to kill everyone anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when everyone is constantly shooting down all of your suggestions. <laughs> he watched that YouTube Eventually video. start looking for better suggestions. Yeah. Uh, back to the Deanna thing. I actually will give it credit two weeks in a row. She was counseling. Yep. She was sort of giving us insight into a new character, asking the right kinds of questions, still being a character of her own. And it's fantastic. Um, what else? Oh, there's a point where Worf is trying to ignore the fact that his ex is there and he's obviously got all these feelings and he's running full diagnostic tests on the, uh, on the phasers or something. And it's just so obvious that that's his version of taking a cold shower. Yeah, it's like, uh, Worf, we already checked. I'm doing it again. I got this. Okay. Damn it. Diedrich Bader set it up wrong. Yeah, the uh, his uh, his his relief in this episode is apparently Diedrich Bader, which means something to someone, but not me. Yes. So there you go. He's the voice of Batman on Brave and the Bold, and also he was in the Drew Carey show. Well, I mean, we all know what a big Drew Carey fan I am, so I really should have caught that. <laughs> and he was the what a lovely Tea Party guy in Jan Sound Bob Strike Back. Oh well, all right then. Um, now you know who I mean. No, I don't. Damn it! Uh, I did see Batman and the Brave and the Bold, so I do know who you mean there. I just haven't seen him in anything. Um. It's weird to me that 
I mean, eventually they, they say that they had sex. But they're on the holodeck, they're fighting, and then they're obviously into each other, and the terrible music swells up, and then they go to commercial. And when they come back, they're still on the holodeck, wearing their clothes, their hair's perfect. Yep. Just like the werewolf of London. They had werewolf perfect hair. Yes. Um, which, on a scale of must to werewolf, it was werewolf. Yes. Um, but it's... <sighs> It's not clear that anything happened because we're we're in the same location. They're standing in the same places. Yep. Their their clothes and hair are fine, and it's like, did they? And then eventually, yes, okay, they and, did. But and neither of them are wearing clothes that it's easy to climb in and out of. Well, we've never seen anyone get dressed in a Starfleet uniform, so no. we don't know how easy those things are. Like we always just see them wearing them. Yeah, like back in the original series, you'd have Kirk putting on a pair, putting on his boots or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's all something to go on here. I mean, I don't want a graphic, you know, whatever. Well, I mean, I do, but that's you a whole do, other trust thing. Trust me, I know. Mm, no, because they would try to cling on it up too much, and it would get weird. They'd have She'd have ridgy boobs or something, and I just... Mm-hmm. Eh. Or triple spines arching in the air. Right. No, I, I don't... It's really not that I wanted to see any further graphicness. What I wanted was a clear indication. Cut to another part of the ship, his quarters cut to, uh, like, later, you know, like, just make some time pass, but yeah. the fade out to commercial and fade right back in made it seem like they hadn't moved, and the yep. only thing that changed, and I, I only realized this in a wide shot, I didn't notice that his sash was missing. And in yeah, a wide shot, you see him... a little his, too, uh... No, you see his sash sitting on the ground, like, oh, okay, I guess it was off. But yeah, that's it. sex sash. Yeah. Uh, well, you can't wear that during sex, there's no honor in that. <sighs> I would or, think there would be tons of honor in that. Or possibly he used it as a prop... I completed orgasm while wearing my Klingon honor sash. That makes me the most honorable of all. That gives me another medal to pin to the sash. <laughs> it's possible he used it as a prop, and that's why he took it off. Uh-huh. That's another thing. The, the holodeck might not have, you know, good, like, bondage toys. I don't know. Not until Barkley shows up anyway. <laughs> it was a chair. Yeah. Oh, God. With straps. I hate that episode so much. <laughs> And I love the end. I love the way Worf thinks of to, to outsmart the Klingons. He, um, and I didn't actually cover this completely in my summary. He, uh, he and Kalar put on old school armor and they pretend that they are the, uh, captain and commander of this Federation ship. And that's the way they convince them that the war is over. Yep. Well, obviously we're controlling this Federation ship, so fucking stand down. <coughs> and the other Klingons are, of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, all right, I'll kill you then. Fuck you. Whatever. We got better things to do. That's how you reason with these guys. You say, all right, well, don't believe me. I will I will destroy you and move on with my life. Yeah. Don't let me kick you off of a mountaintop. Because <laughs> yeah. I have had enough of you. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's great to see, like, Dorne gets so rare, uh, like, so few opportunities to act smug. Yeah. He's so good at it, but because Worf is sort of inherently insecure and just, you know... Like, hard to... Uh, he's always uncomfortable. He's always a fish out of water, no matter... Like, on a Klingon ship, on a human ship, no matter what, he's the outsider. And it's so rare to see him in a position where he can be smug. But he's so good at it. Dorn has these expressions that are just like, yeah, I'm gonna kill you. Yeah, I'm but better I, I than won. you are. And it, he's so good at it. And yep. it's just the character doesn't allow that too often, which is too bad. But yeah, I can't emphasize enough how great he was in this and how great they, the two of them... Just their chemistry and everything about it. Oh, yeah. And you realize that, that Michael Dorn's job isn't just to glower in the background and have his plans <laughs> shot down. He actually, there's some character there. There's some real acting there. Yeah, he does stuff occasionally. Yeah, and he's good at it. Like, he's just as good as, as any of the others. Yeah. Which is nice. 
He, he gets so few opportunities to, to open up and be more than the guy who tries to kick people's asses. Right. Which is great. Um, let's see what else. There's a, there's a thing that they do, and this is the first of many, where they run into a time-displaced crew or person. And the, the punchline, and it's set up very much like a punchline, is, oh, and you, welcome to the 24th century. Uh-huh. And it's like, uh, that feels like a laugh line, but I don't get it. Yeah. But they do it repeatedly. Every I can think time. of two like more opportunities to, uh, at least. They did it to the time-lost redneck and his rich friend. Oh, did Tommy's they do that? Mom. Okay, well, then this isn't the first time. I thought it was. Oh. Um, no, I'm thinking of, they do it to, uh, Kelsey Grammer in the Time Loop episode. Yep. They do it to Burling Hoffress Mewson in the, um, Max Headroom is Trying to Steal Everything episode. Yep. And I think there's another one, but it's, it's always set up like it's a punchline and I don't get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it could be worse. They could be saying, welcome to Earth. That's true. Or they could be saying no Tribble at all. That's also true. Yep. I'm trying to think. I'm going back through my notes. I just keep seeing me writing in all caps, marry me, over and over again. That doesn't really translate to podcasting, so. Are you maybe Funke? <laughs> marry me! I'm so sorry. <laughs> Any Anything else? Any further? I'm uh, just going over my notes here. I would honestly say, I can't decide yet between this and Q-Who. I would honestly say this is, if not my favorite episode so far, top two. It's between those two. This is just so good. Mm-hmm. It fleshes out one of the main characters. It it tells a personal story well. It one of the rare times where a main character is in love in an, inside an hour, and I believe it. And there's also some cool stuff going on besides that. Like everything about this, except for the music, is is fantastic. The show is completely where it needs to be now. It is totally next gen. Yeah. And I think the second half of this season, well, until next week anyway, has finally gotten the show where it needs to be. And there's going to be some missteps, but we're completely, you know, we've completely emerged from season one, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah, no, we're, we're going to start moving towards season three. We know exactly what we're doing. Yes. But, I mean, the, the second half, like, I didn't realize how much the second half of season two is that. We've hit, yeah. we've hit five or six really, really good episodes this year, and I really thought there were only one or two. Mm. And uh, it's nice. It's, it's nice to see that the show got its shit together a little sooner than I thought. Yes. Uh, anything else? Mm, no, I think that's it. All right. Well, the one important thing we need to walk away from all of this is that Riker is now Nails. Nails. I think eventually people are going to ask why we keep calling him that, and I will refer to refer you to episode 75 covering the Manhunt, or Manhunt and the Emissary. <coughs> that's why we call Riker Nails. Yes. Don't ask again. All right. Never uh, ask. My, my quote is a great bit of Kalar... Um, saying what we're all thinking to Deanna. Deanna walks in, sees the smashed coffee table, and this happens. You're upset. You're finally honed Betazoid's sense tell you that? Ugh, I'm so glad they finally brought this up in the show. Yep. I just, like, I was already super impressed with her, and that just, like, oh. It's like, yeah! Exactly. So thank you for that. All right, so next week we are doing the last two episodes of Season 2. We yep. are doing uh, what I remember to be a decent episode, and then we are doing one of, if not the worst episodes the show ever did, uh, which is Shades of Grey, which is the only flashback episode the show ever did. Mm. And boy, is it bad. Yeah. Uh, as we reach the end of the season, uh, our pal Adrian has uh, volunteered to join us, so he will be here for that. So, Matt, try not to die this time. I'll see what I can do. Last time Adrian was here, you were conveniently not... You and Adrian aren't the same person, are you? I don't 
think so. You didn't duck behind a corner and then emerge from a phone booth as Adrian, right? I, I mean, mean, I don't think so, but if Fight Club taught me anything, it's that I can totally know I'm not the, uh, that I'm not two people. <laughs> His name was Nails. His name was Nails. <laughs> All right. And then, of course, following that will be our season two wrap-up with puppets. Hooray! Uh, and a supplemental, and then on to season three, so... Enjoy that, won't you? Uh, one final thing. We did have, as we've mentioned, great fun at the Emerald City Comic Con. It was great to see all our friends and to, to make new friends. We have a video now of that live performance as well as uh, our Sarcastic Voyage performance. Uh, lots of fun stuff happening in the video that you do not hear in the audio. Um, we did a few sort of live demonstrations in the post Horror part of it, which we did those those weird claw gestures at each other that Q and Guinan did. Uh, I tried so to tune, throw my. Make sure you tune in for those, if nothing else. I tried to throw my leg up on the desk a few times, like Riker. I'm just saying, most of the bonus material is in the sarcastic voyage side. Yes, but there were some visual jokes in the postomic horror that are delightful. Uh, we're selling high def versions of these videos for three dollars. That's that's both shows. That's two hours of high def video with a bunch of bonus material. Yep. Um, it's in only content. three bucks. It's it's something that we're using to raise funds to do this again next year. So if you enjoyed hearing it and maybe you'd like to see it, maybe you've never seen us before. Maybe you'd like to see what we look like. Well, check it out. And You will be disappointed. No, they won't. I wore a suit. You will be disappointed by my Magneto t-shirt. That's probably true. <coughs> all right, Matt. That is all. Let's, let's say your thing and get out of here. See you, folks. The Post-Atomic Horror Podcast is a co-production of Ron Algar-Watt and Matt Robotham, copyright 2012. Please don't sue us. We're just doing this for fun.